Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental or emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he's gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as he or she personally chooses, while accepting full responsibility for his or her own individual thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and actions. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares. And by listening to this program, you're acknowledging that you, and only you, are responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and actions. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome back to The Last Symptom, previously called The Last Symptom of Borderline Personality Disorder. I'm Rutt, the creator and host. Rutt, you say. What kind of a name is that? Well, my name is actually Brian Barnett, and my middle name is Russell. Russell is a sort of a family name. So in my family, there are lots of Russells. Cousins, uncles, even my dad. My pawpaw on my mom's side of the family was Russell. But in Appalachia, where I'm from, Russell gets shortened to Rutt. People still speak affectionately about my grandpa, Rutt. He died back in 2001, in the wintertime, after the 9-11 attacks. My grandpa, Rutt, was a World War II vet who fought at the Battle of Normandy. He once told me that uh, when he entered the war, death scared him, well, scared him to death. But after only a few months, and he really told me this story, after a few months of being around so much death, he would sit down to have lunch, and he would literally use corpses that were lying nearby to set his coffee cup down on while he ate lunch. He'd become that deadened or calloused to the realities of war that quickly. Of course, this isn't to say that uh, his callousness or this uh, deadened sense of horror uh, didn't go on to cause him any negative lasting consequences. It, It sure did. When we were kids on the 4th of July, which is Independence Day here in the United States, we were never allowed to set off firecrackers around his house. We, we always had to go off and do it in the field or off at somebody else's house. So no purpose to this story, just a chance to introduce myself as Rut, one of many Ruts in my family, though many of the others go by Russell. You see, that's how the, they were differentiated from the patriarch of the family, you know, the Grand Poobah. Well, many of you know that today is the big announcement for the last symptom courses that I've been teasing everybody with all summer long, and we're going to get into all that, so stick around. But before we get into that conversation, you might hear, I don't know if it's picking, if the microphone's picking it up or not, but you might hear that I have a puppy whining here in the house, a new puppy. Those who listened to last week's episode know that I took a road trip to Texas to pick up this puppy. And uh, 
Everybody who listened to that show, they're all wondering if I'm going to share any details about that. And so let me entertain all those folks here for a little bit, and then we'll get in on some conversations about emotional unhealth and borderline personality disorder and all that good stuff. On Thursday, I up and run off to Texas on a road trip. I was going down there to pick up my new Ladner yellow black mouth cur puppy. And last week I explained why I'm so particularly fond of the Ladner black mouth curs. I've owned dogs all my life. There's never been a time when I did not own a dog. Usually mutts and strays that we adopted out in the country. You know, when you live out in the deep country, you're never hard up for a dog or a cat. They just show up. People, uh, especially in the area where I'm from, they would just drive out into the country. People from you know town would drive out into the deep country and just um, abandon dogs and cats. That's how the that was their solution for how to get rid of dogs and cats. And it's still the solution for a lot of people. I remember uh, walking down the road one time, and I come up on a burlap sack down this old gravel road where I, where I grew up. And it was off to the side of the road, and I thought, I wonder what's in that burlap sack. I opened it up, and uh, there was about uh, six or seven kittens six or seven kittens in this burlap sack, and they were just all huddled up in that sack. So we took them back home and uh, ended up adopting a couple of them. But, uh, you know, that's just the natural way of life in the country. (laughs) In fact, there's a story, and uh, I don't have this on the outline here for today's show, but I'm going to tell this story on the fly. You're going to think I'm making it up, but I'm not making it up. When I first moved to the city, I was in my early 20s. And I left my dog, Bink, uh, at home with my parents. So Bink stayed behind. She was getting up there in years. And I just didn't feel like taking her away from the country life into the city life. So I left her at home with the folks. And now I was living in the city. And uh, I decided I needed a dog, a new dog who could be my city dog. So I went to the pet store. (laughs) You're going to think I'm making this up, but I'm not. (laughs) Went to the pet store. You know, I started looking around at the dogs and the puppies and everything, and I saw this puppy. It was a Toto dog, you know, the same dog from uh, The Wizard of Oz. And I thought, that would make a good apartment dog. So I asked him, how much is this dog here? And she said, well, usually it's eight but uh, he's on sale for five. I thought, wow, five dollars. <laughs> well, for five dollars, I can afford to buy lots of other stuff. I think I had a hundred bucks with me. So I ran around this pet store with a cart and I just loaded it up with dog food and crate and leashes and toys and everything. Got out to about, oh, I don't know. I probably got up to about $50 or something like that. Come back to the counter, had this dog in my arms that I thought I was going to get for $5. (laughs) 
<laughs> and uh, she rung me up, and the price come to like $550. And I sat there frozen in place. My, my brain couldn't make sense of why she was asking for $550. If the dog was only $5 and the stuff I had in the count in the cart couldn't be more than, you know, $50 or so, I could not, I couldn't, you know, my brain was frozen. And I said, I, I don't understand. I thought you said this dog was on sale for five. She says, yeah, $500. You've never seen anybody throw a dog out of their arms so quick. I flipped that dog over into her arms, and I said, you got to be crazy. $500 for a dog? You, you people are nuts. And she looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Well, I wasn't crazy. I was just insulated from <laughs> from the broader world. And uh, the reason why I thought the dog, you know, it never even occurred to me that a dog could cost $500. It, it never occurred to me because in where I grew up, people were trying to get rid of dogs. Everybody was trying to get rid of their dogs and cats they, because there were so many of them. And, you know, all of the dogs I had when I was growing up, they just showed up at our house. You know, we adopted them. So we were never, never going out and buying dogs. There were too many dogs already. So when I went to the city and she asked for $500 for that dog, and then, you know, I think about it, that dog was marked down from $800. I just could not believe it. I just could not believe it. It was like a total twist on my perception of reality. How could anybody spend that much for a dog? What a culture clash that was. And, you know, of course, as time went on, I started to realize that people pay that all the time for dogs. But there's just an example of just how different country life can be, just how insulated a person out in the country can be, and how when you get to the city, there are things that just don't make sense. And how when you've lived in the country for your whole life and then you move to the city, my goodness, there are just things that just really do not make sense. You have no context to understand those things. So I'm sure it works the other way around, too. People look at uh, people in the city, look at us in the country, and they think we're just as weird as can be. So I'll tell you what, uh, any noises that the new dog is making, I'm not going to edit out. I'm just going to leave them in there. I hope they don't annoy you too much, but otherwise we'd just be here all day. Anyway, you know, that's uh, <laughs> that's kind of a little insight on how um, dogs you know, form a part of our life in the country. There's never any shortage of them. Uh, you never have to pay generally for a dog. <laughs> There's so many of them. So, of course, there was never a time in my life when I was growing up when we did not have a dog. We always had dogs. And usually they were mutts or strays that we just, you know, got from living out in the country. And, you know, where I grew up, our dogs were never inside. They also were never on a chain or in a kennel. And anybody who grew up like me will know how it is. Everybody else will be in awe 
that uh, such a lifestyle even exists, but it's true. Our dogs ran free. They were never on a chain. They were never in a crate or a gate or anything like that. They had hundreds of acres to roam. We never, ever had them locked up. In fact, the only time we had a dog locked up is if it was a female and she was in heat. Then we'd close her up in the shed for a couple of weeks until she wasn't in heat no more. And then we'd let her back out. And, you know, we'd get uh, suitors. <laughs> we'd get male dogs visiting from miles around. But that was just the way life was out in the country. The only time my dad would allow our dogs into the house was when the temperatures dropped dramatically below freezing. And then he'd let the dogs into the basement or right within the kitchen door, but no further. They had to stay right there. They all had dog houses outside that were full of straw. And uh, these dog houses were surprisingly warm inside. And I know this because I climbed inside them many times when I was a boy. Climbed right inside with the spiders and the snakes and who knows what else. And I'd lay there with my dog or dogs and uh, and it would stay pretty warm in, inside the doghouse. The, the body heat and the straw was enough to keep a little insulated space inside the doghouse. Anyway, a decade ago, I was living in Philly, and I was doing a lot of wilderness backpacking in the mountains, as I still do, as most of you know. And I was coming across all sorts of bear and uh, other big game. And I started thinking that I could use a good dog as a backpacking partner to be a companion out there, but also to be a sort of extra set of eyes and ears and to provide some security while I was up in the mountains. At the time, I had a border collie named Farley. I'd named him after Chris Farley, the comedian. And I had taken Farley out one week to see how he would do as a backpacking companion. Anyway, we got started late on the first night, and after hiking for five miles or so in the dark, I said, you know what, Farley, old buddy? I'm about worn out. Let's call it a night. So I walked about a football field's length off the trail and into the deep woods in the dark, and I found a nice level area there that I reckoned would make a good spot to spend the night. So I, I cleared away all the debris and got a pretty good fire going there. And then I tossed a wool blanket down on the ground and settled in for the night with Farley, my border collie. Well, we must have set camp right in somebody else's spot. And when I say somebody else, I mean some sort of big game animal. Because I heard it moving around our camp just on the outskirts of the light from the fire. And I kept trying to figure out what sort of critter this had to be based just on the sounds it was making, you know, the sounds of it moving around us through the brush. And it was sort of huffing around unhappily and making lots of noise. And uh, I was just trying to imagine, what could this thing be? It's bigger than a fox. You know, I'm thinking about all these nocturnal creatures. It's definitely not a squirrel or anything like that. Uh, it's big. Could be a deer, I suppose, and, or a bear, or, you know, it could be anything. I just couldn't figure it out. Then at one point, I was sitting up, trying to see into the darkness. Uh, that's when I thought to myself, you know, if this were anything to worry about, surely my dog Farley would be barking or something. So I turned around to see what Farley's reaction to all this was, and there he was, 
huddled behind me, shaking like a leaf. That gum dog, you're supposed to be out here defending me, not the other way around. And this was when I realized that a herding dog was probably not the best companion for what I needed in the woods. So I started looking up dogs, researching them, and I come across the black mouth cur, and particularly the Ladner black mouth curs. I was immediately impressed by everything I read about them, and I even called up Kurt Ladner, the son of the man who originally brought legitimacy to this breed. Kurt Ladner says to me, let me get this straight. You want a fearless dog for if you come up on bears or whatever and find yourself in a tight spot, but you also want a dog that's super intelligent, makes for a great family companion and all these things. And I said, yes, sir, that's what I'm looking for. And Kurt Ladner said to me, well, I'll tell you what, one of these little 40-pound females will run a black bear right up a tree. And I said, great, I'm going to get myself a 70-pound male then. And that's how I ended up with Bradbury, my current dog, good old Braddy. And ever since then, I've not ever had to doubt which breed of dog is best for me. The Ladner Yellow Blackmouth Cur is the best dog I can imagine owning. The dog that the story of Old Yeller is based on. Well, so I drove down there to Texas and I picked up this Ladner pup. And he's currently being house trained and all that good stuff. So you probably heard him whining down there in his crate. My current dog, Bradbury, who is also a Ladner Cur, is closing in on 10 years old. And uh, he's been helping me learn this dog a few new things, which is just how I intended for things to go. So it's working out real nice. They're getting along. Braddy has to put him in his place every once in a while and teach him some manners. Now, not this weekend, because I already have some other obligations to tend to, but next weekend, I'm going to take Bradbury and this new pup out on a three-day backpacking trip and get right into training this new pup for being a good backpacking companion. Now, you might be wondering about the name. I gave folks several possibilities last week, and I asked you to tell me which one you liked best. The options were Abner, which is just a name I like and I've been holding on to for a while. Arliss, after the ornery youngest brother in the Old Yeller story. Everett, after George Clooney's character in the movie Old Brother, Where Art Thou? And finally, Prinicky, as a homage to Dick Prinicky, who moved to the Alaskan wilderness when he was 50 years old and lived a life of self-reliance. Prinicky got two or three votes. Everett got two or three votes. Abner come in second, and overwhelmingly, Arliss was the name most people preferred. Well, even if Arliss had gotten no votes, this is just the name it had to be. I knew it as soon as I picked this pup up in my arms and got a taste of his personality. It just fits. He's definitely, no question about it, an Arliss. Also weighing in with an extreme amount of influence was my daughter, my four-year-old daughter. She refused to accept even the consideration of any of those other names. She saw him as an Arliss as soon as she met him. So for all these reasons, it seems like it was meant to be.
Arliss, it is. Bradbury and Arliss. You know, when you're on a long road trip, your brain has time to think about the strangest things, don't it? I had lots of time to think while I was out on the open road. Specifically, what I'm thinking about is technology in public bathrooms, such as rest stops. For example, commodes now are designed to flush for you. But do they ever do this correctly? Well, you know they don't. The sensor on the commode gets grimy, or the seat gets left up, and then the laser can't sense that you're standing there, or if you've moved away. And so you open up the bathroom stall. And of course, the commode is full of nasty. So what do you have to do? Well, you have to flush it manually, don't you? Now, when you have to do this, is there a regular lever on these new toilets that you could just flush easily with your foot and thereby keep your hands clean? No, of course not. Because highly intelligent, genius scientists designed these toilets. So instead, what they've done is design a little tiny button that you can barely find as a backup. And it's located right there on the back of the commode where all the pee splash and the germs go, which is impossible to activate with your foot. So if you want to flush this commode, what do you have to do? Well, you got to reach back there with your finger, don't you? And you have to directly touch and press this tiny button on the commode which is covered in the nastiest germs you can think of. On a commode, which is supposed to flush itself, but does not. Well, now your finger's crawling with the nastiest sorts of germs you can't even imagine in your worst nightmares. And so you're going to have to wash your hands, right? So what do you do? You go out to the sink. That's supposed to turn its water on for you automatically. Does this ever work like it's supposed to? Of course it doesn't. So you stand there waving your hands under a sink whose water never turns on until you finally get fed up and you move over to the next sink to see if this other sink works any better. When you finally get a sink that works, what does the water always do? Does it keep running as long as you need for it to? (laughs) No, of course not. Remember, genius scientists designed these things to make our lives more convenient. So the water shuts off when you don't want it to. And you have to stand there waving your hands under this sink to get the water to turn back on, don't you? Well, you finally get the soap rinsed off your hands, and now you have to dry them, don't you? And to do this, you have to walk up to a box on the wall that no longer has any sort of manual option for getting paper towels out. Now what you have to do is wave your hands under this box on the wall, just like you were doing at the sink, to try to get it to activate 
when it does finally activate and it dispenses the paper towel for you to dry your hands. Are they ever programmed to give you enough paper towel to actually do the job? No, never. Remember, we're dealing with genius scientists here. The same people who are responsible for the hole in the ozone, the nuclear bomb, and all carbon emissions in the world, but who are also the most vocal group about how it is us, you and I, destroying Earth and causing climate change. These same people have decided that six inches of paper towel are enough to dry your soaking hands with. That's all. That's all you get, six inches, is the amount of paper towel they've decided is enough Really ever enough? Heck no. I couldn't blow my nose with the amount of paper towel they give you. So, I've gone to unashamedly dispensing at least three paper towels minimum to dry my hands with. I don't care if anybody thinks it's wasteful, and I don't care what anybody thinks, period. To be honest with you, if I'm drying my hands, I want the job to be done right. Now, think about all that I've just described. On my trip down to Texas and back, this story I just told happened in every single circumstance that I stopped for a bathroom break. Ain't it a bit of social insanity that we accept this as being progress, as being logical. Wouldn't it be a thousand times more logical to just go back to manually flushing commodes, to manually turning on water, to manually cranking out paper towels to dry your hands with? Of course it would be more logical. But human laziness and fascination with technology that only sometimes works overpowers reason, doesn't it? It sure does. The laptop I'm recording this show on cost me 2000 bucks. It's an Apple MacBook Pro. For this amount of money and celebrated technology, wouldn't you expect that it should work 80% of the time? At least. Wouldn't that be fair? But it doesn't. I'm always dealing with some sort of hiccup. Half of the time when I record this program and save it, it doesn't appear. The file does not appear in the folder where I've saved it for whatever reason. Later, I'll go back and find that there are actually three copies saved where I saved it. And if you look up, the Apple messaging boards to problem solve an issue, you never find the information you need there on the very company whose hardware you're using. No, you have to find some random person on YouTube who has identified the problem and can explain it much better. Think about that. Much better than the actual company 
whose hardware or software you're actually using. I was watching the astronaut uh, Scott Kelly on the Netflix documentary A Year in Space the other day. You know, he's the twin that spent a year in space while his brother, his twin brother, stayed down here on terra firma. The idea was that after a year, they were going to compare these two twin brothers and see what effects a whole year in space had had on the one twin, the one who spent the year in space. Well, during Scott Kelly's one year in space, exactly two supply rockets were lost and destroyed on their way up to the International Space Station to provide supplies to them. Supplies that the astronauts were up there waiting for and depending on. Think about that for a moment. Not even our billion-dollar technology is dependable enough that we can definitely get people supplies in the International Space Station. Two attempts in a row, and the rockets malfunctioned and everything was destroyed. (laughs) And yet everybody's talking about going to Mars in a few years. How about automated self-driving cars? Are you kidding me? How about instead you first create a GPS that actually gets me where I'm trying to go and doesn't lead me to an empty field. You know, that was another recurrent theme on my trip to Texas, by the way. Making hotel reservations, then actually trying to find the hotel with my GPS. More than once, it took me to abandoned areas and empty fields. Oh, well, that's what we're dealing with, ain't it? Human laziness and fascination with technology, overpowering reason, social insanity. It has to be, because if you look at the overall picture logically, logically, no logical person would look at all the added frustration and wasted time in our everyday lives and say that this is better than simply reaching down and pushing a lever to flush a commode. Enough about all that. I'm sure there are plenty of folks out there who will hear this and say, Amen, brother, you preach. And then there will be lots of other people who think I just wasted half of this episode talking about nothing. But, you know, teach their own. Let's talk a little bit about the last symptom, fundamental, online and live, two-week course. If you go over to thelastsymptom.com, You'll notice I've had a few changes made to the side. The Appointments tab has been changed to now say Paid Services. You'll notice in there that there is now a new service offered, the Last Symptom Fundamentals Live and Online two-week structured course. This is, as you might suspect, the structured course that I have been talking about since summer and that a lot of folks have been eager for. Now that I'm making this official announcement to the public in the form of this episode of The Last Symptom, I'll open up that part of the site so that people can pay and enroll whenever after they've heard this show. 
for the moment, it only offers more information. But as soon as I upload this show, I'll go in there and change that. So again, where you used to go to make an appointment with me, now you'll go to the section of the site that says paid services. And so it's right in there with scheduled text messaging with me, scheduled phone calls. Now you've got a fourth option, which is this last symptom fundamentals live and online course. The first class is scheduled for February 4th to February 14th, 2020. I know that sounds like a million years in the future, but it's really only a little more than two months away. Two and a half months or something like that. Why have I scheduled the first class for February? Well, for several reasons. First of all, the holidays are coming up. So I didn't want to schedule anything during that time of year that is busiest for many folks as far as traveling and whatnot. Also, for many people, the holidays mean a lot of spending and debt. So I wanted to schedule the first class out far enough that people could save up or set aside enough for the cost of joining. And also so that they could set aside those two weeks on their schedule. Furthermore, Many folks nowadays are not listening to episodes of this podcast on the day that the episodes are released. Many people hear the show a week or even much longer after it has been published. So, in a way, I'm in the past addressing a lot of people in the future. You folks who are hearing me now, after many weeks may have passed since this show was published, I want you to have plenty of an opportunity to get this announcement in time if the course is something that you're interested in being a part of. Another interesting aspect of holding the first class in February is that February is the month that I personally attended the intensive program in Arizona that I often talk about. February 2011 was the year when I personally experienced the first two major epiphanies that eventually led me to authentic recovery. So, this happened for me in February, and with those insights, I went off and built upon them over the years that followed. But that February marked for me a major, major milestone and turnaround for me. So there's a bit of poetic balance to the fact that my first last symptom course will also take place in February. February is a good month for insights and new beginnings. In fact, if you're thinking about starting a diet, don't do it on the new year. Do it in February instead. The first class will consist of a minimum of six participants and a maximum of 12 participants, and I personally will be the instructor. So class members will have my undivided personal attention for five days a week for two weeks straight. The cost of the course is $750 per person. I've scheduled the classes for Mondays to Fridays for two weeks between the hours of 6 p.m. and 10 p.m. New York time. So anybody who's willing to work with these times, no matter where you are, you're welcome 
to enroll. I chose the 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. time slot because, well, you know, a lot of people work. Asking you to take off two weeks of vacation time from your work to attend this course might be too much of a strain. So instead, I've scheduled the first class to take place in the evenings. Again, starting at 6 p.m. and going until 10 p.m. Eastern Time, that is New York Time, Monday to Friday, for two weeks with weekends off. What's the objective of this course? Is it to totally fix you within two weeks' time? No, it's not. The objective of this course, just like in my own personal experience, is to simply lay down a solid foundation of accurate insights that you yourself will be able to take afterward and build upon. It's meant to provide a structured approach for people who learn better with structured presentations and to help folks quickly and efficiently gain the fundamental insights that they will need in order to escape the subtle unhealthy distortions that they've lived with until now and replace those unhealthy perspectives with new healthy perspectives that can help them approach life more healthfully. In other words, instead of simply listening to my podcasts or reading my articles and trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together on their own, they'll now have me helping them to explain the puzzle pieces and showing how they all fit together. At the same time, I will be able to perceive specific areas that class members might be individually having trouble understanding and focus on those points until the student sees the point clearly before moving on. And, you know, we'll be sharing some personal private details about our lives and about our circumstances and then applying these principles to those specific situations, giving you some insight on that. I'll be getting to know people in the class very well, which will give me a better ability to identify areas they may need to spend more time on, and then helping them do that. A major, major element of this course's success will revolve around the support of the group as a whole, you know, just the nature of having a group of people with the same objectives working on the same thing. While I may at times struggle to find the perfect words to explain a concept to an individual, uh, other classmates might have their own breakthroughs on that particular subject and then be able to explain it to the person having trouble in a way that's more effective than the way that I'm trying to explain it to them. The idea is that isn't it true that each of us understand intuitively what wording might have been more effective in getting a point across to us personally? Or what was holding us back from truly grasping the nuance of a point so students who have these breakthroughs and insights can then turn around and help explain them effectively to other students in their class, sometimes better than I myself might be able to do. As I've explained before, my objective is that the students in each class will develop a tight relationship with each other and continue to be a support and encouragement for each other long after the class is over. 
Currently, my intention for the structure of the class is for me to start each day presenting information focused on one fundamental aspect of emotional health and emotional unhealth, then having group discussions about it. I'll also be meeting with students regularly, one-on-one for private conversations. Is this therapy? No, it's not. I'm not a therapist, so I can't offer you therapy. This is simply me sharing my personal insights with you, insights that I, at some point, had to gain myself. And all of these insights, when combined, led to me personally achieving emotional health and escaping borderline personality disorder. So this is a class intended for those who are interested in understanding the insights I personally have had in my own experience and in understanding how these insights all fit together, as well as understanding how my perspectives on certain subtle things were incorrect before and how those incorrect perceptions created a lot of chaos and pain in my life before. How did me understanding subtle things differently have a wonderful and permanent positive effect on my emotional health? What were those things? And how might your own comprehensive grasp of these same insights be beneficial in your own efforts and circumstances? So that's the announcement for the course. The name of it has changed several times. And most recently, I changed the official name because... I realized that I had to distinguish it from my future plans of traveling and offering this course in person. So to distinguish the course from when I'll be traveling and offering the same program in person, I found it necessary to name this particular version of the course The Last Symptom Fundamentals Live and Online. To make it clear that this particular version of the course is the live online version, which will happen by means of video conferencing. I've not yet settled on the perfect video conferencing service that I want to use for this, but as soon as I've settled on one, I'll let everybody know and include those details over at thelastsymptom.com. If you have any suggestions for this, I welcome you to share your suggestion with me over at uh, my email address, thelastsymptom at gmail.com. By the time you hear this episode of The Last Symptom, you'll have the ability to go over to thelastsymptom.com and enroll in the first class. Remember, no fewer than six students and no greater than 12. How will you know when the class is full? You'll know because I'll shut off the ability for folks to schedule and pay for a spot in the class on the website. Now, as I mentioned before, uh, months ago, I'm reserving at least one seat in the class to somebody who's under financial hardship, and I'm going to offer them their seat in the class for free. For this upcoming course, I already have one of these seats filled. I would like to fill in a second seat for somebody who is under financial hardship. This is going to depend, you know, on how popular the course is. 
will the class fill up or will, you know, we struggle to even get six people to join. We'll see how it goes. Now let's talk about some other upgrades I've made over at thelastsymptom.com. The donations section of the site has been updated and renamed to donations slash sponsor. So now instead of just donations, this section of the site now offers visitors the possibility of sponsoring phone calls with me. What's that mean? It means if you're not under financial hardship, you can pay for a phone conversation with me and I will apply it to somebody who I think could benefit from it who I also get the impression cannot afford it. Additionally, you can also sponsor open spots in the last symptom two-week course for those who may not be able to afford it. So, Anybody who's not under any financial hardship can now directly support those who are by sponsoring a phone call or a virtual seat in the intensive course. The way it works is that a benefactor covers the cost, and then I personally reach out to somebody who I believe could benefit from whatever is being sponsored, whether it's a phone conversation or a virtual spot in my two-week classroom, and I offer the service to them at no cost to them. I want to tell you that I've already been offering my time freely in the form of phone conversations to anybody who hasn't been able to afford to reimburse me for my time. I've been doing this since I started this work. But now there's the opportunity for even this aspect of my work to at least be partially financially supported. The sponsorship opportunities were not my idea. They were the idea of one of my Facebook education group members who suggested it to me many months ago, and I've only just now had the opportunity to implement it. But I think it's clever, and uh, I think it'll allow my work to get supported while at the same time allowing me to reach out to more people. So, I realize not all of us are made out of money, but if that's something that you're interested in doing, I encourage you to go over to thelastsymptom.com, visit the donations slash sponsor section. You can either leave me a donation of your choice, you get to pick the amount, or you can sponsor a seat in the upcoming class, or you can sponsor a one-on-one personal phone conversation with me. There we go. That's, uh, that's all i got for you right now. Of course, there might be some questions. You can feel free to email me over at thelastsymptom at gmail.com or anybody on my Facebook education group. You can just message me through Facebook. At any rate, anybody who's interested in the uh, two-week course, I encourage you, once you've heard this, to run over to thelastsymptom.com and enroll in that course. I'm hoping that the 12 spots will fill up soon. And, uh, you know, we're just going to do it a class at a time. Depending on the success of this first class, I will then announce future dates and uh, post them on the site. Now, let's uh, address a topic dealing with emotional health and borderline personality disorder and all that so that uh, you don't feel like you got cheated out of this episode. A question, Brian Barnett 
rut. (laughs) Did you feel better once you knew that borderline personality disorder was what you were dealing with? Honestly, I'll tell you what I felt. I felt astounded that the deepest, most private aspects of myself, which I believe to encompass me alone, in other words, I thought it was just unique to me, I was astounded that these aspects of myself could be described in detail in literature. How was that possible? Suddenly I realized that my free will, my independence and sense of individuality, it was all an illusion. My behaviors, my reactions, and even some of my most sacred feelings could be predicted and described by some writers if they were insightful enough, even though they had never met me and were not even aware that I existed. I felt stupid. I felt stupid, and I suddenly felt naked to the world. I hated that feeling the feeling of being an enslaved robot to an emotional algorithm. Like I was a marionette doll walking around thinking everything I did was somehow up to me. And here I was learning that nothing had been up to me. My sense of free will disappeared in an instant with the realization that I was operating according to an emotional algorithm. The desire to escape the ignorant enslavement of being controlled so predictably under the surface without my knowledge or permission probably gave me more pure motivation and determination to rid myself of borderline personality disorder more than any other single factor. I'm so glad that a book at the library can no longer predict every aspect of me. If the folks with borderline personality disorder that resist recovery only realized the degree to which their freedom of thought and action is an illusion, just how much of their lives are not really theirs, I think it would be enough to snap a lot of them into doing anything they could do to eliminate that. So no. Knowing that I specifically had borderline personality disorder did not make me feel any better at all. Authentic recovery, being rid of borderline personality disorder, is what made me feel better. And that's where we want to get you. And you can do it. How? Do you remember the three imperative aspects to authentic recovery? One, genuineness in approach. Two, accurate information or education. Three, insight. That's the formula. Genuineness in approach, accurate information or education, and finally, 
inside. Of those three, what part can I or anybody help you with? Well, not the genuineness in approach and not the inside, really. Only the accurate information part. And unfortunately, there's more inaccurate information out there than accurate information. The rest is all you. And you can do it. If I did it, and I did, then you can do it too. You know, there was a book I was reading while I was on this trip down to Texas and back um, that I was really excited about reading. I read the first few chapters, and I was getting really getting into it. And I thought, wow, this is something that is going to be useful that I can recommend to uh, the people who follow me. And then I hit the next chapter. And uh, after that, I realized that not only could I not recommend this book to the people who trust me and follow me, but I couldn't recommend this book to anybody. <laughs> It had some, there were some real gems in the book, but unfortunately, the falsehood or the, the, the incorrect aspects of the book, the falsehoods were so false and so detrimental to anybody reading that book that it completely destroyed the value of the entire book. Really a shame because I was really enjoying it. And now, uh, you know, I'm not even sure I'm going to finish it, but I definitely, definitely can't recommend it to anybody else. That's why accurate information is so valuable. You know, it's such a gem when you finally come across it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I appreciate you hanging out with me today. Be sure to run over to thelastsymptom.com, support my work with a donation if you'd like to, or if you'd like to sponsor somebody for a conversation with me or, uh, to sponsor somebody to enroll in the two-week course that's coming up in February, you can do all that right from the site. And here we are at the Encouraging Finale. As you know, I got a new dog, and uh, I was playing with the dog. I said, Arliss, you're a good dog. I love you, Arliss. Then I realized that my four-year-old daughter was listening. So I said, Well, Arliss, I don't love you. Not yet. But I'll get to love you. I gotta get to know you first. My daughter said, Daddy, you don't love Arliss? And I said, How could I? Can you really love something or somebody that you know nothing about? you can't. Love is built on true familiarity and intimacy. But guess what? I care about Arliss a lot, and there's no doubt that given some time, I will also love him very much.
authentic love is not rooted in the desire to love, nor in an admiration for love as a concept. Authentic love is not merely a feeling. Rather, it's a principled quality born from intimate understanding and knowledge and experience with a thing or a person or a dog or even with God. Something to think about.